there, friend. Thank you for listening to Kind Mind. This is Todd. Man, I love October. And this fall season is beautiful so far, at least in the Midwest. I'm so glad I live in a world where there are Octobers, said Anne of Green Gables, written by L.M. Montgomery. We've had some great events recently. If you haven't been out to the Homestead in Plano, Illinois, that's on the last Tuesday of the month. At least this month and next month, we'll probably take a break for Christmas and resume in January. The next one is October 25th at 7 p.m. But you can find more details on my website, michaeltoddfink.com events, because there is a yoga class ahead of time if you'd like to attend that. There are drinks and mingling at 6 when doors open, and then our gathering starts at 7. Also, I may have mentioned before, but we have this fun poetry chat at least once a month on Zoom now for Patreon members. All you got to do to support this podcast is chip in $5 a month. You can cancel anytime. But then you can access the meditation page on my website, wisdom stories, uh, recommended reading list. And you can join us for these poetry chats. They're always about some kind of transcendental or mystical writing that's inspired me or influenced me and that I open it up to uh, conversation and other interpretations. If you're hearing this before Thursday, October 6th, there are a few spaces left for my return to Indianapolis. I will be speaking at the Bain Gallery in Carmel, Indiana at 6 p.m. with photographer Robin Belomo and hosted and presented by Lindsay Trosel, who also has a podcast called Beautiful Gray Sponge, which I would recommend you listen to. And now we're just going to jump right into this episode. This was recorded early this year, I think in February. This is really one of my favorite topics. I was really happy to reflect on this one and listen back because this is a theme that means a lot to me as an artist, as a seeker, as a clinician. Intuition is defined as the ability to know something immediately or to know something without proof. In the digital age, intuition may have taken a backseat to satellite GPS or Google searches. However, its philosophical significance for our personal life and psychological growth has not been diminished, but rather overlooked. There's some good scientific reasoning to call it a gut feeling. According to researchers at Johns Hopkins, We have as many as 500 million neurons lining our gastrointestinal tract, forming what scientists call the enteric nervous system, ENS, or second brain. This can partly explain why antidepressants may be prescribed for irritable bowel syndrome, which often includes emotional distress. The medication can soothe symptoms by acting on nerve cells in the gut, but Is intuition still a good guide? Is it outdated now that we have seemingly more rational tools at our instant disposal? Well, that's what this episode is about. It explores the science and spirituality of intuition, along with its theological origins in Sanskrit and Latin languages, which emphasized inner and tutor 
as its core meaning, respectively. So I want to conclude this intro by sharing a poem that basically summarizes what this episode's all about and will ultimately be included in my future poetry book, which hopefully is getting closer to publication. That poem is called Inner Tutor. How to know the difference between impulse and intuition. Intuition leads to something new, impulse to something familiar. Intuition abides much deeper and often remains unclear beneath the cacophony of external information. The word intuition descends from Sanskrit and Latin, antra and intueri, respectively. Taken together, the meaning is inner tutor. A tutor's duty is to guide and also protect from a position of wisdom or love. Our intuition may seem to withhold advice until the most teachable or critical moments. However, that is merely when it shouts. With enough quiet, it will not need to. Intuition deciphered. It is the third and most subtle manner of inner knowing. Instinct is of the body. Intellect is of the mind. Intuition is of the soul. Thank you again for listening and for all your support. I hope you enjoy this episode as well as this month of October. Look forward to seeing you soon. Take care. Back when I was in college at Georgetown, I was traveling to D.C. from somewhere in the Northeast, like New York or Philly, and I was taking a Greyhound bus, and I arrived late at night. The trip was delayed, so I believe it was after midnight, and the Greyhound bus station is in a part of town that is more economically disadvantaged. It was a rougher part of town in the Southeast, and there were no taxis available, probably because it was middle of the night and the weather also wasn't great. And I started to survey my surroundings and I didn't feel very safe at the time as a young man. And this was probably before I had a cell phone. So I didn't really have a way to, to coordinate um, a ride back to school, which was on the complete opposite side of town in the northwest part of the city. So I'm trying to make a decision about what to do. And then I felt something inside of me telling me it's going to be all right. A way is going to appear. And then shortly after that, a man approached me and said, hey, you look lost. You need a ride somewhere? And he points over to to his car and there's another man in the car and he's like why don't you hop in the car with us we're heading across town so wherever you need to go we won't we won't mind uh taking a quick detour and and dropping you off and something inside just immediately said yes this is completely correct and this is my way even though on the surface it didn't look like the wisest decision two strangers middle of the night 
the car didn't look like a vehicle that you would randomly want to get into, and I wouldn't recommend this to anybody. But I listened to my intuition because I also felt like the longer I delayed getting some way home, the more risk I was taking also just being alone in the middle of the night in that part of town, carrying some bags and just looking lost and vulnerable. So I had to make a quick decision, yes or no, and I said yes and I got in the car and uh, they took me all the way across town. We became friends and we talked and we had a, a bunch of laughs together. They took me right to my doorstep in the north part of Georgetown and, and I thanked them. And I also thanked my intuition when I got home. It was special to have heard a voice confirming that prior to their arrival. My takeaway from that experience was that intuition or some uh, knowledge within us that defies conventional logic can save the day. And it can go both ways. There have been times like that where your logic might say, uh, this probably isn't a good idea. And then there's other times where your logic will tell you this is the best bet, but it's not. And I can remember a time when I was living in Ireland and was playing music with my uh, friend Pete. And we did one concert today together as a duo, as an acoustic duo at the Temple Bar Music Center downtown in Dublin. And there was a, a, a gentleman, a promoter in the area named Aiden. He befriended us busking on the street one day and then helped us get a concert booked at this really nice music venue downtown. So afterwards, we hung out, we started to become friends. Before I left Dublin, Aiden said, you know, he'd like to help me stay plugged in to the circuit in Ireland and asked if he could help build a, like a promo package. Press kit, that, that's what it is. Press, it's been a long time since I had to send the press kit to anybody. Yeah, I said, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. He's like, all right, well, let's, uh, you know, let's get a, a bio together. We'll, we'll get some photos and we'll put this all together and I can send it to other concert promoters and, and maybe you can do a, a tour of the, of the country before, before you head back. And then on the day that we had uh, a photo shoot scheduled, I just decided at the last minute not to go, to just pull the plug on the whole thing. I didn't even give him a reason. I just didn't answer his calls and just um, ghosted him, as they say now. And then later on, I found out that there were some allegations that, that this uh, concert promoter had assaulted some young men by luring them into something like he was inviting me to do back to his apartment and then drugging them. And I didn't really have a good reason uh, on the surface to to suspect anything like that. He was just kind to me and to Peter and, and it helped us. I mean, so the logic of friendship would be that uh, th this would be a safe next step, but the inner voice within me was uh, advising otherwise, and again, I listened to it. So I, I point out those two stories because they're 
kind of the inverse of each other. And I listened to my intuition in both cases and both times, it protected me. And this is kind of what is special about the meaning of intuition. So its definition in the dictionary is uh, the ability to know something immediately and without proof, sort of bridging the gap of acquiring knowledge in the conventional sense with the scientific method. So it's a gut feeling. But the word itself, intuition, has etymological origins in proto-Indian European languages and Sanskrit. In Latin, intuere uh, meant to, to tutor, or intuit is a tutor. And in Sanskrit, you have roots in the prefix antar or antara and tavas. Antara is inner, within, interior. Tavas is strength or power or protection. So intuition in these theological linguistic origins meant our inner guide and our inner protector. And in and those examples in my life, it certainly served as that. Today, we live in this era of, with the explosion of technology and information. And the internet is the information superhighway. The ubiquitous nature of media and information actually disconnects us from our own thoughts and feelings and intuitions. It's not that um, it's been diminished in this age of reason, logic, rationality, science. It's just that we're tuning in more to the extrinsic and ignoring the intrinsic. And I think there will be times when we have to make a decision, all things being equal. I have plenty of facts and data and research to support going this way and the same for going this way. And in those moments, it's definitely worthwhile to have a conduit or channel to our inner intuition to be able to make a wise decision. In therapy today, we call this wise mind. When a patient can be in touch with their emotional experiences, their impulses, their gut feeling, and at the same time, be able to slow down a, a reaction to a trigger to be able to consult with logic, history, data, facts, reason, and so on, and to be able to proceed with a response with a blend of the two. Jonas Salk has a quote, intuition will tell the thinking mind where to look next. So tonight we'll talk a little bit more about some of the science, uh, emergent science of intuition, but then we'll just go a little bit deeper into what I still believe is the spirituality of intuition and why it's an innate part of, of who we are. There's a neuroscientist, Antonio Damasio, who has a number of really beautiful books. He calls the sensations associated with intuition as somatic markers. These are like tensions in the muscles, butterflies in the stomach, changes in heart rate, shifts in our hormones and endocrine functioning. And those signals have evolved for survival. And even though we're in a world that's much less dangerous day to day than it was for our ancestors, these somatic markers still carry a lot of wisdom. It's important to still be in tune with it. 
And we've been talking lately about this gut-brain connection. And so the gut feelings that we have with intuition also has some science behind it. I mentioned in the description that we have as many as 500 million neurons in our gastrointestinal tract. Also, there are hormones, there are neurochemicals that are mostly in our gut. I've read that 95% of our serotonin is in the gut. And so medications like Prozac and Paxil that treat depression and anxiety are also interacting with the neurons in the gut and increasing serotonin in most cases to affect the mood. So the point here is that our diet and our, and our medications and our mood-altering experiences all affect our gut-brain relationship. And so that's going to have an impact on our ability to intuit a path forward in different situations. Also, lately you may hear more talk of like intuition versus rationality and analytics in sports. During these football playoffs that just ended with the Super Bowl recently, this came up multiple times. When to use analytics to make decisions and when to trust your intuition. I saw a number of times where it was pretty clear to me that the coach was making a decision on different fourth downs in different games based purely on on analytics, based purely on what the computer would tell you to do. But multiple times I saw that backfire. Because even if you have plenty of data that suggests this is effective 88% of the time, let's say, how would you know when you're in that 12%? You wouldn't know based on the data in front of you, but you might know because your gut is rejecting the rational decision. And I think there are coaches and there are players, especially the grades, they have their own inner compass and it doesn't always seem to align with what you would do based purely on science. I've also experienced this myself playing sports where you're trusting the moment so much you're trusting the the present experience and you're letting go of your conscious self and i can feel this shift and it doesn't happen all the time but when it does it's such a beautiful experience it's almost the reason why you would play the game a few examples throughout my short sports career where i did things that seemed to defy logic. There was one time in a, um, in a tournament in middle school where the game was really close. I was bringing the ball up as a point guard and it just crossed half court. And of course, at, at that time, this was way before Steph Curry, so no one's taking three pointers from that far out. But as the defense really backed away, there was just again an intuition speaking to me saying, shoot from here. And there would be really no good reason at that time that anyone was aware of to shoot from that far out, especially with plenty of time left in the game. And I just obeyed it and I launched the shot from nearly half court and my coach started running on the floor to choke me and then relaxed as the shot went in. And you know, I had to explain to him later, he was still like, what the hell were you thinking? And I said, I was just listening to my intuition. There are moments like that 
in sports, because of the pace of the game and the lack of time to make some decisions, you have to make split-second decisions. And sometimes that actually, I think, activates our unconscious or deactivates our thinking mind and helps us to be able to just operate intuitively. I'm sure there's many other activities and programs that you can you can be involved in or, or in the military, for instance. I'm sure people in the military can relate to this. But it's one other reason why I feel like sports has been really valuable in my life because it teaches you how to use deeper levels of knowledge and how to make split-second decisions to trust your gut, to trust the present moment, to trust your instincts at times, and to trust your teammates. There's a scientist at UCLA, Dr. Judith Orloff, who believes that intuition is entirely in the right brain. That's, of course, associated with creativity and other side of our brain is associated with logic and science and, and math and so on. But she also believes that women may naturally be more intuitive than men because of the bridge between the hemispheres called the corpus callosum. And in women, naturally, there is more white matter. So this part, this bridge is thicker in women connecting the two hemispheres allowing for further and faster integration of information between emotion and logic for rapid intuition and decision-making. This may also explain the notion that men are more compartmentalized in their thinking or have a harder time shifting from emotional reasoning to intuitive reasoning. Again, I said there are all these neurons in the gut. So some scientists say that the, the gut actually is a second brain because of all these neurons and because of the primacy of some of the neurotransmitters like serotonin. The communication line or one of the communication lines between the gut, the second brain and the first brain is the vagus nerve. Research shows that more than 90% of the fibers lead from the gut to the brain, meaning more information is coming upward than downward, suggesting that the enteric nervous system can actually make its own decisions. And when our brain gets signals from our gut, it interprets this as emotion or intuition. But are there drawbacks to this? Are there drawbacks to intuition? Especially nowadays, now that we have Google searches and GPS tracking and all the all this uh, technology. Well, cognitive scientists who, are, who I've talked about a lot before, Daniel Kahneman, he thinks that this is part of a primary system of decision-making. So system A is instinctive and system B is more rational it's slower. So this in intuition or gut instinct, he theorizes, is more prone to error. And an example would be the framing effect. I'm going to read to you an experiment that Kahneman did in the 80s based on a hypothetical public health situation where there's an outbreak of a disease. And the information given to the public health officials is that 600 people are going to die from this outbreak and there are 
two courses of action that can be taken to mitigate. But the participants are divided into two groups and the problem is framed in two different ways. In one way it's framed based on lives saved and in the other group the choices are framed in terms of lives lost. So for one group the choices are to go with program A which if adopted 200 people will be saved. Alternatively the officials could choose program B and if that's adopted there's a one-third probability that 600 people will be saved and a two-thirds probability that no one will be saved. And in this side of the experiment, the majority of volunteers selected the first option, Program A, that will definitely save 200 people. Now on the other group, they're given two choices as well, but the problem is framed differently. Their choices involve Problem C, or Program C, sorry, and if that's adopted, 400 people will definitely die. Or Program D, if this is adopted, there's a one-third probability that no one will die and a two-thirds probability that 600 people will die. In this case, the majority of the subjects are willing to gamble and they choose the second option, Program D. Now, both of these options are the same, equate to the same outcome for both of these groups they feel, the subjects feel in these examples like they're making an intuitive choice. Even though they're, they're biased and there's a heuristic in operation that they are unconscious of. So what feels like a wise choice is actually just the framing effect influencing their decision making. That's the way Daniel Kahneman views it but I, I kind of think that this is due to maybe a limited definition of intuition. Intuition, well, is something more subtle and more innate. And I think rather than it being intuitive thinking, there needs to be a distinction between intuitive thinking and intuition. Any amount of thinking is done with the intellect. And intuition is beyond the intellect, especially when you explain this in a spiritual way. So we'll come back to that in a second. But there's a, another scientist, Rupert Sheldrake, uh, who's a biologist and philosopher. And he has a book called Ways to Go Beyond, where he talks about the spirituality of animals. And I think some of these, these studies and anecdotes from the way animals behave and the three psychic abilities that he points out that animals have, one being telepathy, another being precognition, and a third one is uh, destination. You can take a pet and put it in a location that where it's unfamiliar with its surroundings and it can still intuit its way back home even up to like a thousand miles away this this happened to, to my family once we had an outdoor cat tiger in indiana and tiger kept bringing dead mice to the front porch as a gift and that wasn't so much a big deal until tiger started doing that on all the neighbors porches 
and they started complaining to my dad and then you know tiger was was an outdoor cat and we weren't going to try to make her an indoor cat so my dad said we got to take the cat to a farm and and set her free there and so he he found a farm for her to go to and we were upset and everything but tiger came back a day later escaped the farm and found her way back and then uh, immediately resumed giving mice to the neighbors they were even more frustrated so my dad and my mom and dad took tiger to an even farther farm like 100 miles away or something like that and uh, and that was that for some time but 6 months later we saw tiger at our friend's house on her way <laughs> way home like uh, just a couple miles away almost completing her journey so uh, sheldrake talks about some of these uh, capacities direction finding telepathy and precognition and I'll read to you a few passages from his book. Some really magical examples of this. Many dog owners simply take it for granted without reflecting on the wider implications. Many cats also anticipate their owner's arrival, but fewer do so than dogs. In most cases, Dogs howled for no apparent reason, but some whimpered or whined or barked in an unusual way. In cases where no sounds were mentioned, they were said to be upset, miserable, shivering, terrified, or distressed. In most cases, the animals showed clear signs of distress at unexpected times when their people were far away, and when those looking after them had no reason to expect any problems. A woman from St. Albans in Hertfordshire, England, was on holiday in Ireland with her husband when he died very suddenly on Easter Eve. Our seven-year-old standard poodle was staying with friends in St. Albans. At just after midnight, the poodle howled and rushed upstairs to my friend, who was in the bath. At just after midnight, my husband died. On one occasion, a cat belonging to a family in Switzerland was very attached to their son who went away to work as a ship's cook. He came home irregularly, and the cat used to wait for him at the door before he arrived. One day the cat sat at the door and meowed very sadly. We could not get him away from the door, wrote the boy's father. Finally we let him into our son's room, where he sniffed at everything but still continued his wailing. Two days after the cat's strange behavior, we were informed that our son had died at exactly that time on his voyage in Thailand. Sheldrake also talks about in this book, Ways to Go Beyond, how he did research on um, cameras in people's homes that had pets and could actually f see uh, the footage of animals wailing or reacting when owners spontaneously or unexpectedly died, like in a car accident. Also, this footage that he reviewed also would show that animals would know ahead of time when owners were coming home unexpectedly. Now, it's one thing when an animal knows to go to the door at like five o'clock when someone arrives home from work at the same time every day. And even though, you know, animals don't look at our conventional clocks, they have their own internal clock with the sense of smell. So the their sense of smell is so strong that when the owner leaves, the amount of the scent of that family member diminishes throughout the day and let's say it gets down to 15% of its strength 
at the time the owner returns. Well, a dog or cat can can tell time in that way and know approximately based on the strength of the scent when the when the owner is likely to return. But in experiments where this happens at, at different times or in this video footage that Sheldrake has looked at, you can see that the animals still know even when the owner's coming outside of, of the routine. So what I'm saying is that based on some of this kind of research and what Sheldrake describes as the morphic field, the explanation for this he hypothesizes is due to energetic fields that allow for the transmission of information. But I think at, le at the very least these examples of seemingly psychic intuition with animals suggests that maybe this is something that is natural for all mammals and our pets are still more in tune with this sense or this extrasensory perception than we are. They still rely more on intrinsic knowledge and we have been conditioned these days to rely more on the extrinsic. How can we tune in better, especially with these distractions pulling our attention away? especially on the brink of the introduction of the metaverse. So I want to share with you a writing from Steve Jobs describing his time in India, which I believe was in the 70s. And I think this is poignant given the evolution of the technology in the 21st century from the iPhone to the metaverse and him being one of the pioneers of this uh, smart technology. So he wrote, coming back to America was for me much more of a culture shock than going to India. I'll pause there for a second. I can validate that as well. I was in India for several months. And after I adjusted to the pace and, and also the intuition of forest life, ashram life, village life, when I returned to United States, it just seemed chaotic and the reverse culture shock was more intense than the original. So coming back to jobs. The people in the Indian countryside don't use their intellect like we do. They use their intuition instead and their intuition is far more developed than in the rest of the world. Intuition is a very powerful thing, more powerful than intellect in my opinion. That's had a big impact on my work. Western rational thought is not an innate human characteristic. It is learned and it is a great achievement of Western civilization. In the villages of India, they never learned it. They learned something else, which in some ways is just as valuable, but in other ways is not. That's the power of intuition and experiential wisdom. Coming back after seven months in Indian villages, I saw the craziness of the Western world and its capacity for rational thought. If you just sit and observe, you will see how restless your mind is. If you try to calm it, it only makes it worse. But over time it does calm, and when it does, there's room to hear more subtle things. That's when your intuition starts to blossom, and you start to see things more clearly and be in the present more. Your mind just slows down, and you see a tremendous expanse in the moment. You see so much more than you could see before. It's a discipline, you have to practice it. Zen has been a deep influence in my life ever since. At one point, I was thinking of going to Japan and trying to get into the Aihaiji Monastery, but my spiritual advisor urged me to stay here. 
He said there's nothing over there that isn't here, and he was right. I learned the truth of the Zen saying that if you are willing to travel around the world to meet a teacher, one will appear next door. So I find that fascinating, and I can relate to that to those experiences that Jobs had in India. Funny though, how uh, you know, s- some of these innovators had those experiences, and and yet, you know, continue to build build a world where our attention is more consumed by the virtual than the actual. Coming back to Sheldrake's theory of the morphic field, the morphic resonance, there's a story, I'm not sure if it originates him, but he, he talks about it sometimes in his writings. And for some time, I think people weren't sure if this was a, a true story, but it was used to explain the collective unconsciousness that Carl Jung talked about and how ideas seem to emerge at the same time, or innovation seems to happen at the same time, or technological shifts from things like um, nuclear power or atomic weapons arising in and being worked on in laboratories in different parts of the world at the same time. What other weapons to the information technology that we have today. But there's a story called the hundredth monkey effect, and it's about how uh, a group of scientists were on an isolated island in Japan teaching some monkeys how to wash their sweet potatoes before eating it and how this would remove some of the sand. After they taught enough monkeys on this island, they observed that the, the elder monkeys had a hard time adopting this, but the middle monkeys would teach the younger monkeys, the middle-aged monkeys would teach the younger monkeys and pass it on to their young. And they noticed that when this reached a critical mass, what they called the hundredth monkey, that monkeys on other islands started to spontaneously wash their sweet potatoes in the same manner, even though there was no means of communication between the isolated islands separated by bodies of water. Whether or not that's true or could be true um, is not the point. The point is that this does in fact happen or has happened in history in other ways like I described. And we need a framework for which to explain how it happens or how there may be a collective unconscious that gives us in intuition, that gives us knowledge. And Sheldrake hypothesizes that there's some kind of field that we don't fully understand yet. But I'd like you to consider that there are three inner tools for decision-making. One is in the body, and each one is more subtle. One is in the body, it's instinct. Our instincts try to fulfill biological drives. Food, water, safety, sex, companionship, friendship. And we don't actually have to be taught that. You don't have to be taught to eat. You don't have to be taught to sleep. You don't have to be taught to be safe. We know that um, a child can instinctively remove their hand from a hot stove. So safety is instinctive and that decision can happen in an instant. But it is in the body, and the body is 
not very subtle. We can see the body and from the point of view of our bodies, we can recognize those sensations within us. But more subtle than the body is the mind. You can't see the mind of another just by looking. The mind is the seat of intellect. Intellect is the process of thinking where we can weigh the the messages coming from our instincts and we can override that with intellect and we can make we can make a decision based on other data, other science, other facts, other history. It's it can be slower than instinct because instinct is an instantaneous and then our intellect can can make even a wiser decision when it overrides our instinct. It can say, no, I'm not going to eat this right now because I don't know if that food is safe or I I know something about safety, about food, about survival and don't have to rely on instinct. So we can make a more informed decision. But more subtle than the mind is intuition. And if we were to consider this to be a more spiritual quality, we could say that instinct is in the body, intellect is in the mind, and intuition is in the soul, or spirit, or consciousness, or or whatever you want to call it. Therefore, to, to cultivate it would mean we'd have to get more subtle, or we would have to create the silence or stillness for us to pass through those levels So you'd have to be patient with the instinct, be patient with the intellect, and get to that still point, that most subtle place. And therefore, meditation would be the path to this. And if you are struggling to make a decision where you have equal knowledge, then I would invite you to meditate for some time. If it's a small decision, meditate for a small amount of time. If it's a large decision, Meditate for some weeks or for some months and then see what what intuition is coming from the depths of your being. There's another uh, type of knowledge, a system of knowledge in in yoga and Vedanta similar to this. It's um, three levels of knowledge beginning with jnana. Jnana is a Sanskrit word for knowledge or science. And then there's vijnana, which means applied knowledge. So there's book knowledge, I read about something, I read how to do something. But that doesn't mean you know how to do it. You go to school to learn engineering or to learn how to be a doctor or a lawyer or or scientist or some kind of worker, some kind of profession. But that doesn't mean you really know how to do it. And that's why many programs also involve practicums or internships where you actually practice doing it, doing the, the profession, applying the knowledge that you've only learned or heard. After enough of this practical application, a person has wisdom. So from jnana to vijnana to pragnana. Pra means advanced or supreme. That's the very practical side of knowledge, but in the spiritual sense, um, this is about the integration of head, hands, and heart. Our hands represent our instinct, the instinct to take this food, 
to, um, to be close to this person, to embrace a loved one, to do a particular work, to build something, to build shelter. The head represents the intellect, the thinking mind, the analytical mind. And the heart represents the soul or the spirit. But in a more practical sense, our loving nature, our capacity for compassion, devotion. We need all three. One is not necessarily superior to another. They all have their moments to shine. But when a person knows how to integrate the three and is not cut off from any of the three and doesn't allow the changes in the world to diminish any one of the three, then a person can live in harmony with himself or herself and uh, the natural world around, around them. Intuition may actually be the power of love manifesting. And I'll conclude with a little story, a Zen parable about a traveler who climbs a mountain and when he reaches the top he sees a woman, hermit, meditating. He approaches her and asks what someone like her is doing all alone in such a secluded and solitary place. And the woman responds that she has a lot of work to do there. The young man is a little confused. He says, but aren't you scared to be here alone? And what is the work you have to do? She says to him, well, I have to train two eagles and uh, two hawks. I have to calm two rabbits and I have to charm and discipline a snake. I have to motivate a donkey and ultimately I have to tame a lion. And the young man started to think, well, maybe this woman is um, mentally ill because he's looking around. It's a barren mountaintop and he says, well, I don't see any of these animals. So where is this work that you speak of? And then the woman patiently explains to him, well, the two eagles are my eyes and I have to train them to uh, not be attached to seeing the negative in life. I have to train them to see what's good and useful. And the two hawks are my hands. They want to grab things and hoard things and even hurt others at times out of greed or out of possessiveness and I have to train them to be kind and compassionate and the two rabbits are my feet they want to go all over the place they want to go in different directions and they want to go to good places and places where I'll be safe but they also want to get me into trouble and I have to calm them so that they can be patient and accepting even when they're in uncomfortable situations. And the one snake that I have to charm and discipline is the tongue. And even though I keep my tongue in a cage of 32 bars, the teeth, with wisdom teeth, it's still prone to strike and lash out and say things that could be judgmental or hurtful to others. And then the donkey. The donkey is the body, and I have to motivate my body because it constantly wants to rest and it doesn't want to do this work. And then finally is the lion. The lion is 
in need of taming because of its pride and its vanity and its desire for power and its craving for respect. And that is the ego. And it's the, the sense of I-ness that has to be subdued. Upon hearing this, the young man is illuminated. He realizes that she's no ordinary woman. But her, her story and her practice of discipline inspires him to look inward and to cultivate his own intuition. So in this way, these practices can be taken up, any of, of those disciplines that the Zen hermitess was engaged in, to reveal our innate ability to intuit and to understand and to know, to have a deep knowing that comes from the core of our being. But it's not about acquiring knowledge. I think intuition is about revelation. 